Welcome to this Innovation Forum podcast with me, Ian Welsh. I'm delighted to be joined today by Renaka Ramachandran, who's the Chief Financial Officer with Sign Derby Plantation. Welcome to the podcast, Renaka. Thank you, Ian. We're going to talk a bit about net zero planning and the role of a Chief Financial Officer in establishing these sort of targets. We've had a flurry of corporate and national net zero target setting. Do you think that talking about net zero is still the right language to use? And if so, why is that? Net zero has been coined, I believe, for easy understanding, more scientific-based sort of calculations. There's clarity over the setting of targets. In short, I suppose it can synonymously be considered carbon neutral as well. I believe that's the language of today or since COP26, I think it just picked up momentum. And there will always be a change. Well, the one constant in life is change, yeah? It's called net zero today. It may be something else tomorrow. If you ask me, this is the perfect term for today. Given that then, what does Same Derby Plantation's route to net zero look like? We started working on our net zero charters a few years ago. Well, I would say it gained momentum really after COP26. We've always had our emissions released for scope one and two done way back in 2012. But scope three was a whole new different playing field. Sometime in 2021, we started efforts to actually re-baselining our targets So we reset it to 2020, taking into consideration scope three, which involves third parties. Really, it's about your supply chain and not just looking at yourself internally and what you purchase, but your entire supply chain. That was how we started off. I'm happy to say that we have actually been validated and approved as far as our emission targets, both short-term and long-term. And here, I mean short-term, I mean the 2030 target, reduction targets, as well as the 2050 net zero aspiration that we have in place. So it's been now validated by SBTI, the Science Space Initiative Committee, something that we're really, really proud of because we are actually the first oil palm company to actually get validated and approved. This is the start of the journey. I suppose the key to it is we have got targets. And when I say 2030, it doesn't mean everything is backloaded to 2029. So you have targets nicely set for each year, what you're meant to achieve each year in terms of carbon reductions. What was your specific role internally in establishing these targets, the the plan, the net zero strategy? It might seem strange that as CFO... I am kind of like involved quite deeply in this, but really it's where the world is changing. So Ian, you may remember that in COP26, the American accounting fraternity and the rest of the world came together and the international sustainability standards were actually issued last year in 2023. So as a result of it, as a CFO, you know, this is no longer an area that is totally the responsibility of the sustainability division. And hence, you know, what better way to get involved in understanding the science behind this 
the calculations, the mechanisms. And within Songabi Plantation, I played a role really in terms of, I wouldn't say doing the exact work, but actually I would say validating as well as challenging the assumptions in coming up with the numbers. And I also led the steer call in relation to this. Interim targets, you've mentioned them just now. How are interim targets effectively set? Firstly, you need to step back and look at the big picture. The aspiration is to achieve net zero in 2015. And once there is clarity as to the steps that you need to take and how the emissions are going to be reduced, then you just work backwards as to what are the interim targets. Less to say the interim targets would be the low-hanging fruits. So in terms of Sime Dhabi Plantation, one of our key emissions under scope one and two is really methane capture, which is in all our oil mills. So how do we address that? It is about building biogas plants. It is about addressing the emissions away from the atmosphere. That item by itself takes away a lot of the carbons as far as the land-based company is concerned, some company like us. On top of that, given that we are quite aware as to what we need to address, actually looking at three pillars, the first is really looking at renewables. So that's the low-hanging fruit, the biogas plants, solar capture in our own premises, as well as selling it back to the grid, as well as to look at land use change. And land use change, what I mean here is reforesting, reforesting available land, to replace some of the carbon emissions. In setting these interim targets, do you think that they can get lost in focusing in the long term? And how do you ensure that there is this focus in the short and medium term? Whilst on paper, so I come back to how the emission targets or the baselining was first done, yeah? They are based on assumptions. Some of it may be general in nature. I do admit that it may be general in nature, especially your third-party emissions. It's not really based on actually what company A is emitting. So things may change as they go along. Will they get lost? No, I don't think so because your targets are clear and your pathway to the targets are also clear, clearer. Numbers may change here. The numbers may change if we think land use rights actually emits 40% of our emissions. We may be wrong. It may be 38, it may be 42 So those are adjustments that you take, you do as you go along. I suppose when there is check and balance on a periodic basis, that actually assists in ensuring that we can't see the trees for the woods or the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. A nice pun for our palm oil business as well. What's been most challenging then in this whole process? One of the most challenging things was the baselining because it's about data, data, data. And in spite of the maturity of our company and the data that we do have, there were some areas where assumptions needed to be made. That, I think, was one of the most challenging things. The second thing was when we set targets, there is a little bit of, and these are more the long-term targets, not the short-term targets, there is a little bit of anticipation that technology will continue to improve to be able to address the challenges that we do have right now. For example, technology in relation to peat emissions, how do we address this more effectively? 
it's interesting so much of the ultimate net zero challenge is the sort of technology that doesn't exist yet do you think that may be the final obstacle the technology that gets everyone to the 2050 ambition is it developing the technology to achieve that that's going to be the final obstacle do you think i think it's about the cost for example when you talk about net zero it is about neutralizing carbon emissions so it can be done around various ways it's a matter of whether you reduce the emissions itself from your own operations or you replace, you do other stuff to reduce emissions. So reforestation is an example of that. It is about cost. Will technology be the barrier? I think it is a challenge, but not necessarily the total barrier. We talk about EV cars, we talk about battery storage, and we still don't know how we're getting rid of the batteries yet. But I do believe when the time comes, the technology will be there because there's a lot of investment that's being put into it. As Chief Financial Officer at Sound Arab Plantation, how do you ensure that environmental impacts are central to financial decision making at the business? So we do have an investment committee. I actually chair the investment committee where all new investments of a certain spend will need to go through the investment committee. And it's a prerequisite that all new investments have got carbon emission calculations in relation to the product. And if we are talking about a fresh new refinery, it has to be done, and we have one recently, it's being built. It has to be done in such a way that it addresses not just renewables, how you use renewable technology, It has to also address the supply chain, for example, who you buy from, uh, prerequisites over there. Something else I wanted to ask about, the US Borders and Customs subjected your business to a withhold release order recently. Can you tell us a bit about why that was and how you worked to have it lifted? That was indeed a dark day for Sandabi Plantation. I suppose we've always prided ourselves for being ahead as far as sustainability is concerned. And the WRO was placed on us in relation to, largely in relation to forced labour indicators that appeared to purportedly existed in our operations. I would say the organisation went through the seven stages of grief, couldn't get out of stage one for a long time. But my job was really about leading the team of the entire senior management team at the leadership level, at the most senior level, in terms of reviewing our entire Malaysian operations and to ascertain whether it it was not so much an audit where it existed, but more whether our processes were in place to ensure that this does not bring about an issue. We went through all the indicators and actually got it reviewed by a third party and happy to say it was lifted last year after a very eventful two years. What strikes me is that many businesses in the agricultural sector have now accepted that forced labour is simply going to be a challenge they have to address. It's going to be in the supply chain. It's not a question of saying we have none because that's not realistic. It's a question of where is it? Do you think that's now the case? You Forced labour indicators may exist anywhere. Yeah? It doesn't even have to be plantation because if you look at what the indicators are, it can be you and I may be subject to forced labour indicators. The difference with us is We have the choice to leave our employer if we wish to. I think that the important thing is, is it rampant? It's not about a single failure, 
But if there is a single failure, there must be systems within the organizations that actually lifts that issue and it is addressed quickly. So you need to have the processes and the governance surrounding addressing these issues. Plantations, they open to this particular FLI issues largely because basically they run migrant workers rather than local workers. And hence, you know, there is always the concern that the supply chain will be impacted. Transparency really feels like it's the culture that's developed and businesses like Sam Driver Plantation and others acknowledging, accepting that there are the challenges around social issues, forced labour and others, saying, yes, these are challenges we have and we want to address them. What are the keys to developing that culture of transparency, do you think? The first thing is really twofold. So internally, all companies should have proper grievance processes. So these are then lifted. There should never be a situation where the perpetrator actually is the one investigating the issue. So there, there are sufficient whistleblowing lines and grievance lines that should be introduced to help the internal process. From a transparency angle and stakeholder management, engagement is so important. We do plenty of engagements, whether it's with our investors or even with the NGOs. I think the one other added thing, whether it's environmental SBTI validation in years to come is maybe third-party audits. I think that is getting a lot more accepted, a lot more necessary, whether it's with customers or other parties, on top of making available our own governance processes and reviews public. Particularly around net zero, companies are setting 2050 targets. That's still quite a long way away a real need to keep up the momentum. How do you keep it going forward? As a company itself, so when we talk about net zero, a lot of the work has been done by key teams, whether it's head office or sustainability teams and and things like that. Once we start rolling this out to every single individual in the company, there's full understanding and appreciation of the impact it has not only on us, but on the environment. It will become a culture, Ian. You don't have to think or ask, oh, I'm doing this for net zero. It is something that you would naturally do as part and parcel of your day-to-day life and how you address things. How to keep momentum moving? I believe we should celebrate wins. We should celebrate successes. We should also share failures, but not in a disparaging way, but more in terms of learning from it. In SDP, the difference I feel compared to other organizations, and believe me, I've spoken to many people, is the fact that everyone in senior management is almost as well-trained as the sustainability person as far as the key pillars are concerned. We may not be experts, but the understanding is very wide and deep. I think your point around sharing failures is is so important because everyone can learn from this. There's no doubt that these are areas where companies have accepted that it's a collaborative approach across supply chains with peer companies. Discussing when things go wrong and being able to do that is a really exciting change. Interesting to hear from from the likes of Saimdari Plantation, you're talking about these different challenges that you faced and how you've dealt with them. It's been a fantastic conversation. And thanks very much indeed, Renaka Ramachandran, CFO at Time Dabber Plantation, for taking us through some of the challenges from Net Zero and some of the social issues you've dealt with in the last few years. Thank you.